We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a double episode for you, a Chennai Chess Olympiad retrospective extravaganza. We are joined by two separate guests who had just returned from Chennai sharing their experiences. Of course, it's a tournament where so much chess history is written. Legends are born, legends grow, friendships are formed, and FIDE elections take place. In this case, uh, Dvorkovic, the incumbent, won. So we've got two guests relaying their experiences kind of from the opposite ends of the chess experience spectrum. First up is Lula Roberts, a.k.a. Lula Robs. Lula has been playing chess for less than two years, but she has a remarkable story. She's improved quite quickly, and she's from a small country called Jersey. She's one of the strongest women from the country of Jersey, and they were able to send a team to the Olympiad for the women for the first time. She played first board. It is not an experience Lula took for granted. As you'll hear, she prepared a lot for the tournament. She lived and died with every game. 
mean, but she also sounds like she was able to sort of soak up the experience and appreciate the experience. So it was great to hear Lula's look back at the Olympiad. Following Lula, we are joined by international master John Donaldson. John attended his 14th Olympiad as the captain of the United States team. The United States, of course, was the favorite in the open section, the highest seed by a significant margin. They had a slightly disappointing result and came in fifth. Uh, John discusses that. He also um, contextualizes the tournament more broadly, having attended so many Olympiads. John also highlighted what he felt to be an underreported aspect of the uh, Chennai Chess Olympiad, which unfortunately was the impact that COVID had on the proceedings. And J- John is also, of course, just an amazing knowledge, amazing author and a wealth of chess information. So, and with a special emphasis on Bobby Fischer. So, of course, we always like to get some Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky nuggets from John. He did not disappoint in that regard. And he also, towards the end of the interview, talks about what else he has been up to. Um, so, I'm not going to go through all of the results at the Olympiad. You guys probably have already heard about them. I would say the biggest headlines were from uh, Grandmaster Gukesh from India, too. The fact that Uzbekistan won the gold medal, that was a huge upset in the open section. I was quite happy to see that Ukraine won the women's section. But honestly, there's so much that takes place. It's hard to shout out everyone. I mean, I would, I guess I will mention Gukesh, of course, was the biggest story of the tournament, the young Indian grandmaster who had a phenomenal tournament over in the women's section. It was great to see legendary grandmaster Pia Kramling win the gold medal for individual performance. Uh, other gold medal individual performances. I'd like to shout out Aliwia Kielbasa of Poland had an amazing tournament, nine and a half out of 11. And last but not least, friend of the pod, David Howell, when I interviewed him, he mentioned that it's a lifelong goal to win a medal at the Olympiad and boom, he goes and wins the gold medal for top uh, performance on third board. He actually had the highest performance rating in the entire tournament. And speaking of David Howell, he and Magnus Carlsen just released Grind Like a Grandmaster. You may have heard David mention that too in our recent interview. Uh, so shout out to our presenting sponsors, chessable.com. Be sure to check out Grind Like a Grandmaster as well as Levana Ronian's got a course out now. So, um, Just thanks, as always, to Chessable. Be sure to check out everything new that they are offering. But without further ado, we're going to get you to these interviews. This is a long episode. There's timestamps in the show description if you need to jump around. But uh, I think both conversations are highly worthwhile, so I hope you all enjoy them as I did. Uh, So without further ado, I will talk to you guys in the interviews. And we are here with Lula Roberts. Lula has had a remarkable rise in the chess world. She was a Queen's Gambit convert, uh, got into chess seriously in December of 2020 at the age of 22. She started streaming chess and has quickly reached 10,000 Twitch followers. She has over 14,000 Twitter followers where she's known as the meme queen. And she has rapidly improved at chess in this period, perhaps more importantly. She has a FIDE rating near 1600. She's originally from a small country called Jersey, or she is from a small country called Jersey, which is one of the Channel Islands off the coast of France. And because this country has a population of about 100,000, she was able to compete in the Women's Olympiad just within two years of um, of discovering competitive chess and she's been doing vlogs for chess.com uh her team jersey was supported by chessable and chess.com there uh listeners who heard 
my mid-Olympiad interview with Mr. Dodgy of Chessable may have heard that he's been coaching Lula some, among others. Uh, but without further ado, let's welcome Lula Roberts, a.k.a. Lula Robs, to the show. Welcome, Lula. Hi, Ben. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I mean, I've been following you like a lot of people online for uh, since since not that long after you appeared. And it's been remarkable to see your progress and see you rapidly build an audience. And uh, yeah, been been taking notes and enjoying. But then especially when you get to go to the Olympiad, I mean, you've probably gotten a sense from having been there and from having talked to other chess players. It's, it's a special uh, opportunity and you seem to be relishing it, although I know that it's not without its stresses as well. But anyway, Lula, let's begin with when you had a first inkling that you might be able to go to and play in the Olympiad. Yes. So um, we started talking about putting together a women's team really almost from the first time I went to my local chess club, basically, because I went just before Christmas last year. Uh, they started up again after COVID. And then I went to the AGM um and they were all you know we've never had a women's team before could we even like could that happen could we have enough active female players because our club is tiny you know we don't have um we don't have that big of a reach and so I mean I had been streaming last year and I think someone pulled up like the Jersey Chess Federation and was like Lula there are no rated female players you should get involved you know you should do this maybe you'll get to play some events and stuff and uh, like this time last year, I hadn't even considered playing an over-the-board event um, or getting a FIDE rating or anything like that. It wasn't until the winter that I even thought I might try. Um, but yeah, this kind of February when we were starting thinking, maybe we could put a team together. We need to have a tournament. We need women to play and see kind of where everyone is and who would qualify. Um, it was honestly, <laughs> it was very... Um, hopeful but honestly it was kind of touch and go until we got our visas a week before we traveled or just a couple of days before we traveled to India because we had to get paper visas so really we didn't know we were going until the week before yeah that's been a common story of the the issues with the visa considering how many people I've heard that from I feel like it's been somewhat remarkable how few issues I've heard of people who actually didn't get to go now, once you showed up at your club, Lula, obviously you've, you'd are, you are already uh, building a name in the online space, uh, already getting good at chess, but still, um, having not even played an OTP tournament when you first heard about it, like, what did you even know about the Olympia? Did you know that it's, I mean, obviously we all know what the Olympics is, so did you know that it was this, like, hallowed sort of institution within <laughs> the chess world? No, I didn't know anything about the Olympiad, honestly. Um, I mean, after the idea was introduced to me, I kind of figured, oh, kind of like the Olympics, but for chess. But really, right. I didn't know a single thing about it um, until we considered putting a team together. And then also I read Ch uh, Chess Queens by Jennifer Shahadi, and she talks about the Olympiad in that as well. So really, I was only introduced probably to the idea of the Olympiad a couple of months before it happened um which is kind of crazy to think about and i do feel incredibly lucky that i got the opportunity to play and put a team together and that we got sponsored by chester common chessful which is kind of crazy in and of itself all of these things are a bit surreal um but no it was all very new everything is still very new to me 
Yeah. Well, shout out that you didn't just take a picture of yourself with Jen's book, Chess Queens, but you <laughs> you read it. And yeah, that's a good primer for, uh, I know Jen had some formative experiences at Olympiads and, uh, and yeah, mentioned that like, like me, who's never been to an Olympiad and certainly never will be, you know, other than as possibly a media member. Um, she like, I think it, it stirs up nostalgia and FOMO when, when you're sitting at home sweating this event. And this one in particular, I feel like there was something about it that did just the atmosphere seems so festive. Um, now, of course, as we mentioned, I know that it wasn't without its difficulties, but but let's bring us there, Lula. So you know you're going. I know you did some training, but let's let's just get to the trip. So yeah, and, and this is your third tournament. How was the flight and what were things like upon arriving in Chennai? Sure. Yeah. So we flew. Um, we were really lucky, actually. I had kind of horror stories of people traveling for like 30 hours plus. We flew um, almost direct from, I mean, we flew Jersey to London, London to Chennai. It was really easy. We got there. We got to the hotel. And um, I basically set myself a task to not jet, not get jet lagged. Um, <laughs> so I stayed up for about two days straight with like the travel and everything. And I was kind of a, just a bit like wired on the excitement. Um, and we got there the next day, there was the opening ceremony. And I think we were sat like right in front of the English team, which was really cool because um, I'd spoken to Zoe, who's on the English women's team and David Howe, and he introduced himself to me. And it was just like really nice. It was like, oh my gosh, there's all these people from the internet and they exist in real life, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. David Howe introduces himself to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was very funny, actually. Um, yeah. No, it was like, it was ironic, obviously, but we're, we're mutuals on Twitter and he, he asked me for a picture and I, I laughed because obviously lots of people were asking David for a picture. It was very sweet. He was, he was very kind. Yeah, that, that seems to be the rap on him. I've certainly had, <laughs> a, had good interactions with David as well. Um, and then, so how many days before the chess tournament started did you get there, Lulu? Uh, we got there just two days before so the day we got there the day before the opening ceremony and the opening okay. ceremony was the day before round one okay yes. now i've heard mixed reports some people said the opening ceremony was beautiful others said it might have been a bit long <laughs> where, where do you come down on this okay so it was very cool we saw a lot of cultural displays like dancing and and music but it was very long um, okay. <laughs> it was it was very long and um we kind of we got given this sheet beforehand which gave us like an itinerary and told us that we would be home by like 9 or 9 30 i think we were still waiting for a shuttle bus at like 10 or something like it was a really long day and it was like um for, for most people i think the the journey from the hotel alone was almost an hour so it was like a six hour experience which is quite a lot when you've just traveled um but you know with the with the level of excitement in india around the olympiad it makes sense that it was so like long and, and packed full of things because they were just so excited and they wanted to show us everything and and of course um it was kind of it's a you know once in a lifetime thing um to go i definitely didn't understand the speeches that were in tamil but um i did enjoy myself overall good okay and then it's chess time so yes. what are your expectations you're playing i'm guessing mm -hmm. this is your first team tournament yes as well uh what like what kind of prep do you do and what are you expecting as it's time to get down to business okay so in terms of expectations 
Uh, I really tried to not set them too high because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So if I, you know, set myself up for disappointment, I'm, I'm, it's not going to go very well. I think our team was hoping to get around 50% overall. Um, and I was playing board one, which was a little bit daunting, to be honest. Um, so I didn't really have, I mean, it's always nice to get 50% or more, but I knew that that was quite unlikely to happen, especially if the team started to do well, because I would start facing increasingly difficult opponents. Um, so I tried not to think too much about the results. In terms of prep, we did prep uh, every morning with uh, Mr. Dodgy and with... Um, we had Grandmaster Alonzo Zapata, who was our team captain from- I saw that legend. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's, he's lovely. Um, he, so he was like appointed um, from FIDE. And so we prepped openings in the mornings before the rounds, essentially. We would wait, you get your um, player list at 10 a.m. and the round is at 3 p.m. So you have a couple of hours to kind of look them up and see what they play and and see if you're happy with it see if you need something specific that kind of thing um so it definitely was quite serious I mean in terms of opening prep I always say that I do better without opening prep to be honest um we did definitely prep for this because it was serious but in tournaments before when I've just kind of been winging it a bit because you know my last tournament was in Italy and I just kind of wanted to go to the beach kind of thing um yeah. this this was definitely a much more ordered like structured approach um it was it was serious you know it's the Olympiad yeah yeah and the prep things at Catch-22 obviously the topic has come up a lot here on on this podcast and mm. you'll hear some of my like esteemed guests say you know you got to try to get get that edge figure out what they're going to play but then others will say you need to keep a clear head you know you're there yeah like you know the work has been done and of course the olympiad is a unique circumstance in that you have so much time and obviously so many eyeballs on you um w which uh brings me to you know when i first reached out to you about this interview you'd <laughs> lost like your first uh, three games and you're like uh can, can we wait till we win a game so <laughs> i did i, I did ask i went till i win a game so i apologize <laughs> for the timing <laughs> no, no 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 it's fine yeah the the start was really tough for me because um obviously with the swiss we were pretty much right at the bottom because i was the only rated player on our team so we got paired against bolivia in round one and they were just really strong and i was playing a wfm who was like over 2000 uh she went on to beat you know a wgm from the england team the next day so it was like really hard at the start we the pairings were difficult i mean obviously it was expected but it still sucks to lose like no matter yeah. how much you're expecting to lose uh when you get hit by a couple of losses in a row it really does start to um starts to make you feel maybe like you doubt you're doubting yourself or um that you should have prepped like better or studied more that kind of thing and you don't want to have doubts when you're in a tournament so that's what that is why i did wait um and i asked you if we could wait until i'd won a game and i did i actually won um because i had round four off as a rest day and then i won in round five so it was okay in the end yeah and you finished we should say with four out of ten so you said your your kind of stretch goal was five right yes uh, yeah it was so i didn't quite make it but um you know, I, I did not, I really didn't do as badly as I thought I could have done on board one. Yeah. And honestly, like part of the reason I wasn't even on my radar when, when I reached out to you that you're 0-3 is like, 
you know, to a lot of chess fans, like just to be there, like it's like you are you already won. For but sure. I know that when you're in the heat of the battle as a competitive person, that's mm. why you've made so much progress um, so quickly. It's obviously it's good to care, you know, and uh, totally yeah, um, you have to care. Totally understandable, but we we are glad that you turned it around. And <laughs> what about uh, away from the board, Lula? So obviously you've got your prep in the morning. I know on like Instagram and stuff like that, you mentioned like you went on little shopping expeditions. So you were someone that was like able to escape the hotel. But <laughs> was it like a lot of downtime, a lot of socializing? I get the impression it was tough for people to coordinate getting together. So basically, like, what would you do after the rounds? Honestly, um, it was very, very full. And after the rounds, essentially, I had I had quite a few interviews and things like that at the venue to do whilst I was there. And then we would wait and get the shuttle bus home. Either you would wait for the team or you would go. Um, and we were quite far away from the venue, our hotel. So I think most nights um, we didn't get home until 8, 9, 10 p.m., um, we definitely never got home earlier than 8.30, I don't think. So we would have dinner. And then honestly, I don't think we were allowed out after dark. So it was not sociable, to be honest. Um, we did have this thing going in the evenings where um, Alonzo would go over the games from the day. And I did it once and honestly, I can't do that mid-tournament where you kind of go through all of your, like nitpick your mistakes. Um, Cause I find it also just distracts me. And then I also start doubting myself. So I didn't do so much of that because I just needed to switch off from chess at some point during the day. Um, but yeah, honestly, I mean, they're long games. Um, you get, you have time control. So you, there are days, you know, when you wouldn't finish until after six thirty, seven, that kind of thing. Um, so if you need to get back, have dinner. And then, I mean, if your team wants to go over the games, there's not that much free time, to be honest, because uh, you need to sleep as well at some point. Yeah, that makes sense. But you did you did escape with a chaperone at, at least once, right? I like did. you mentioned you made a friend. Yes, so yes, what yes. was that like? Uh, so one of the volunteers at a hotel, Sneha, she was lovely and she took really good care of us. We went out shopping together on the rest day. We went into Chennai and did some sightseeing. Um, and the rest day was after round six, after the Bermuda party. So I did okay. manage to get out. Okay. And I saw in your vlog, you did attend the, the Bermuda party, but it seems like you, you behaved yourself and you're just there for a couple hours. I did. I did behave myself. I decided, um, well, honestly, I was, I was very tired. I wanted to get the first bus home, which was at 1am. And then it didn't end up leaving until 2, 2.30 maybe. But I, I, okay. you know, I was there for a good amount of time. I saw, you know, everyone that I wanted to see said hello to them. And I did order a drink. But um, when I realized at the bar that they weren't measuring the drinks, I decided I just couldn't. Do, I couldn't do that. I put my drink down and, and I didn't uh, did not have any alcohol throughout the whole trip, actually. So, um, oh, wow. I, yeah, it's very, very sensible. Um, oh. But no, it, it was good. It was really it was honestly, it felt kind of like a, a wedding reception in a way, like the Bermuda party. It was very well organized, you know. Well, Lula, it shows uh, admirable restraint that that you only had one drink, but it is. Uh, I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, got to have a little bit 
of a break. And obviously, we know that you picked up the pace, your team picked up the pace and won a few rounds. And as we said, you finished with four out of 10. You uh, provisionally, I believe, earned the WCM title. Is that right? Yes, I did. Because I had a I had this comeback where I managed to score three and a half out of four. So with my three losses in the first three rounds, that gave me half out of seven. So I have WCM when I reach 1800. Okay, well, congratulations. Thank you. It's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like <laughs> I said, it's, it's it's such a fast rise. It's really cool to see. And I do want to pick your brain about uh, chess improvement a little bit before I let you go. But um, sure. before we do that, just you obviously you had the big journey back. Uh, you've had some time to sort of contextualize it. I saw that you met Judith on the way home. So, I did, um, yeah. So, l- like... What are the highlights uh, um, aside from meeting Judith, which I assume is one of them? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, honestly, the highlights for me are probably meeting a lot of the people that I did meet, you know? Um, like I saw people that I had met in other tournaments, like Anna Cramling, and um, I met a lot of chess streamers like Jesse February, Rebecca Selkirk, you know, people that I'd known from online that I had never managed to meet up with. It's just really nice because it reminds you that the chess community is a community. Um, yeah. And that even though it's an individual game, it really, you know, we are all brought together. And and at the Olympiad, um, playing with a team, it it's very different experience than I thought maybe then I realized it would be, you know, because when you're playing chess tournaments by yourself, um, it's, I mean, you're focused on you, but when you're playing at the Olympiad, you're like, oh, maybe I need to draw this so that our team can win the match or draw the match or, you know, I'm down a piece, but I really need to hold this position. Things like that, that, that you would, I think it changes your mindset and changes your outlook towards some of the games and, um, yeah, it's definitely um, new and, and very different to, to tournaments that I'd played before. Uh, it is exhausting, though. I mean, it's 11 rounds and I played all but one. So it was much more uh, intense than other tournaments that I'd played before. So as someone who is still very new to chess, I... I did feel a little bit out of my depth at times. I mean, I'm not a professional chess player. I'm not a professional athlete. You know, I'm not like, uh, I don't have a lot of, you know, years worth of experience with with this kind of stuff. But it was very cool, um, of course. It's, it's all still a little bit surreal. I mean, a lot of these things for me don't really sink in until way after they've happened um like with how fast things go or a lot of the time it feels like things are moving really slowly but then you're like oh wow I just you know played the olympiad I don't know it's I feel like I need to get distance from things before they sink in yeah that that totally makes sense well a couple follow-ups I mean number one did did you like the team dynamic as opposed to individual tournaments that, that you've played in um I think to an extent it definitely helps with morale um but I also feel like it adds pressure because you know you're not just thinking um about your own performance you know it's definitely there's more there are more factors at play than there usually would be so I think yes but I I think that I I'm glad that most tournaments are individual okay that makes sense yeah and on the topic of your fatigue uh you did mention that you had 
um, long, long bus rides. And as the tournament went on, following you um, on Twitter, I could sense an increasing exasperation with uh, with the the length of just the time getting to and from the venue, which is totally understandable. Yeah, I mean, it, it. Some days it was a little bit ridiculous when you're kind of you get on the bus and then you're waiting on the bus for half an hour before it leaves, and right. then it's like forty five minutes or more journey. So it is kind of. A little bit too long uh it, it was resolved at the end you know that it did get better but um and I, I do know that they were they were trying very hard but it was definitely tiring especially after your game especially if you lose and then you have to wait kind of 45 minutes for a bus or whatever and you just want to be home and you just want to have your dinner and and have a shower um because also it's, you know it's really hot weather so it's all just yeah right yeah it's all just a lot if you if if you really just want don't want to be somewhere you can't there's no quick fix yeah well 2024 olympiad in budapest hungary i'm guessing if it's really in the city center which i think it is i'm guessing the transportation issues would be significantly better because you can probably get there on your own if you need to yeah um, you're gonna go if, if, if uh, <laughs> given the, the opportunity um if i have the opportunity to go uh, then then yeah i would love to be a part of it again i would love to compete again um i definitely feel like i have learned a lot from this first experience and in two years i don't know how my chess will be i'm hoping that i will have continued to improve uh, i would be really interested to see you know how differently I play at that Olympiad. I feel like it's an interesting way to check in every two years. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And that brings us to the topic of chess improvement because you have made great strides um, in this less than two years that you've been playing chess. So uh, what has your approach been, Lula? Are you like um, a learn online person? Are you a soft tactics person? What's your preferred method of chess study? Sure. Honestly, I don't study that much, which uh, I play a lot. I play a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I really Uh do. I play all the time, obviously, because I'm streaming. But I think that for me, when I improve the most is when I play classical chess. I think that those are huge learning experiences for me because, I mean, sitting down for three four five hours and just like thinking about a position uh i think i learn the most from those experiences um i definitely do need to do more tactics and i definitely do need to uh do the chessboard courses that mr dodgy gave mm-hmm. me uh, <laughs> he sends me messages like um i can like he was like i can see that you haven't been like doing this you know Lula. you need to study uh <laughs> you can't just watch the videos you know I, I i feel like um i don't know i've been getting this uh increased urge to actually put some time in the, i think it's as you know as it's uh closing in on autumn and and it starts to get colder I, I want to sit in my room with a book and do more things like that whereas in the summer i really don't um but i think that for me playing and analyzing is uh the most important thing i'm not that i don't really like studying openings that much because at my level people still deviate really early um you know, 15, 1600, not everybody knows 20 moves of theory or more. So yeah, I, I have a lot of chess books they're staring at me right now, which huh. many of which have not been 
looked at yet. <laughs> so, sounds like you're a chess player to me. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, and and learning by playing is a tried and true method of improving. And obviously, it's been been working for you. So don't listen to Mr. Dodge. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> um, no, just just kidding, Mr. Dodge. Um, but it it has been impressive to see, and I agree with you about classical chess being the um, the biggest accelerant for myself and a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I, if you don't mind, I would like to I, we. The, the subject of the Reykjavik Open comes up fairly often here. I know that you didn't have all positive experiences there, which uh, I would be not happy to hear you talk about, but welcome the opportunity for you to discuss, but also just would like to hear how that experience compared to the Olympiad. Yes, sure. So uh, Reykjavik was my first ever federated tournament, and I didn't I, I went into it with no expectations, really, because I had never done anything like that before. And I do have to say, overall, it was a positive experience. I met a lot of wonderful people. Um, there were definitely negatives that I've spoken about, you know, on Twitter. And there are articles about what happened and things like that. Um, and I don't want to bring it up, you know, all the time. And I don't want to talk about it too much. Um, but... Uh, It's definitely um, more complicated being a woman in chess than maybe I had thought before I first went to a tournament. Um, and I do feel incredibly privileged entering chess as an adult in that way that I never had to be a young girl in chess, you know, and feel like maybe um, not welcome in every space. But the organizers from Reykjavik are all amazing and... Um, I saw, you know, a lot of people on, for example, the Icelandic women's team that I met in Reykjavik. It was, it was honestly so nice to catch everyone, catch up with everyone at the Olympiad. It was very different to the Olympiad. I found the Reykjavik was much more sociable. Uh, mm -hmm. We, we had a lot more downtime. Even though there were days with double rounds, we still had more downtime. I mean, we we I mean, we were in an Airbnb, like a five ten minute walk from the venue, so we, we could just kind of. Um, come and come and go uh which was very different with the olympiad obviously but um i think i i think that as you play more tournaments you definitely maybe i don't know maybe building stamina is the wrong word but you you um don't take the losses as hard i took losses really really hard in that tournament um and i felt a lot like i didn't fit in or that I didn't deserve to be there because I felt like uh you know I've just joined chess I'm not even that good yet what am I doing here you know you lose a couple of games and and because it was my first tournament I didn't have a FIDE rating I had all this imposter syndrome that I was wrestling with at the time which is 100% a me problem but I think it's something that a lot of us face and I don't have that so much anymore um and I think it is just exposure and a little bit of experience. I'm not saying that I'm experienced, but a little bit of experience does help. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're getting more comfortable. And yeah, I know that, like you said, it wasn't, unfortunately, you did have some negative experience in Reykjavik, but it sounds like uh, there was some positive as well. For sure. Um, and at least, uh, at least on the topic of uh, like, um, you know, men, um, making you feel unwelcome was mm. uh Shania better in that regard 
Yes, yeah, everybody was incredibly nice. I didn't meet anybody. Um, I, no, I, I didn't meet anybody at the tournament that I had a negative experience with, to be honest. It was really, really nice meeting people from all over the world. And I, I met lots of captains of lots of different teams and... Um, I would love to see them again at another Olympiad. No, it, it was it was good. Yeah. Great. Glad to hear it. And what do you have coming up, Lula? So I know you mentioned the fall's coming. You're hoping yes. to hit the books. I know you're joining me as you're about to go on vacation. <laughs> um, but uh, are you thinking about tournaments and what else do you do you have planned? So I have one more tournament that I've booked this year, which is um, actually the Guernsey Chess Festival. So it, Guernsey is the Channel Island next to Jersey. Oh, wow. Um, so they host a federated tournament. And um, for example, Harriet Hunt is playing and, you know, some other great British players. So I'm looking forward to that. That's in October. And uh, that's, yeah, that's the only one I, other one I have this year. That is four in one year, which is zero to four. That's quite a lot for me. Um <laughs> And uh, I was thinking about playing uh, Hastings, but I don't think I will because I just think it's, you know, too much travel and, and I, I have to leave something for next year. Although, like, I can't right. do, I can't play Reykjavik, the Olympiad and Hastings all in the same year because I won't have anything left. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that now things are going to get a little bit quieter. I'm going to have some more time to study. I've got one more tournament. But other than that, I can focus, you know, on content creation and on improving and less on, you know, big events, which is super exciting. But it is um, I, and I am really looking forward to going away on vacation, but I haven't been at home for more than two weeks for quite a while. And it's weird. Um, so yeah. it, it is nice to have some downtime. Yeah, that makes sense. And and on the content creation front, obviously, you spend a lot of time streaming your um I would hope or think a lot of time brainstorming on Twitter because you're so good at uh, <laughs> coming up with funny tweets and memes and stuff. But do you have any other sort of uh, projects uh, that that are going to be front and center for you, Lula? Um, big projects, nothing planned. One of my goals for this year was to really work on YouTube, and honestly, I've let it slide. <laughs> but um, that's, that's still something always, I'm thinking about. Yeah, there's always yeah. so many potential you know avenues to explore <laughs> yeah um, it's just the time really but now that I'm having more time I, I do want to do more because I'm the thing that I love about um content creation is that it's very creative so if I'm not making something I'm not happy I feel you know I feel like um stagnant I feel like I'm not making progress if I'm not creating in some way so uh yeah I, I would love to start doing more uh, YouTube, that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, Twitter is something that I do spend a lot of time on, which I hope <laughs> I can yeah, justify in some way. Um, but yeah, I do spend time, lots of time streaming. Honestly, I don't have big plans that far in advance because everything happens so quickly. And I just, um, I'm kind of taking it all as it comes. So I don't really know what's going to happen six months from now, uh, which is a little bit scary because I used to be, a bit of a planner very organized uh <laughs> but now i can't be so okay well whatever it is i'm sure um we will enjoy it and uh yeah lula thanks so much for for taking the time uh, i know you've got a big link tree 
linked to in your Twitter <laughs> where but the the main thing is people I assume should should check you out on Twitch, correct? Yes, that would be that would be the main thing. I do stream six days a week actually, apart from now I'm going on vacation. But yeah, six days a week. Don't worry, this will be well this comes out uh, six days from when we're recording. So I don't know. You might be back soon after that. But in any <laughs> event, um, yeah, encourage listeners to. Uh, and you're also on uh, Instagram, we should mention. And I think that about covers it, right? Yeah. You know, all the social medias. Yeah. You're, 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 the, you're a grandmaster. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, Lula, this has been great. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time. I know things have been hectic for you. So uh, congrats on, on your success. Looking forward to more. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Our friends at aimchess.com continue to roll out new features all the time. Some of the latest include a training room where you can work on tactics, advantage capitalization, blunder prevention, tons of stuff. They've got their own analysis board. And of course, they still have my favorite feature, which enables you to do large scale review of your games and look for patterns that recur, review the mistakes that you've made in your games, set goals, and the list goes on. Uh, Aim Chess is well worth checking out. And if you decide to subscribe, please use the code perpetual30 or use the link in the show description to save 30% on Aim Chess. Com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are here with a return guest, always one of my favorite guests. He is a chess historian, an award-winning author, particularly an expert of Bobby Fischer and American chess history. And he is the 14-time captain of the American Olympiad team. So has 14 Olympiads to reflect on. And he just returned home, a 27-hour trip uh, from Chennai. He was there captaining the American team, as always. And we are excited to welcome back international master john donaldson to the show hi john hi so excited to have you as always john as i mentioned in email of course uh we are both americans so we were hoping for slightly higher than a fifth place finish from the u.s and we'll discuss that eventually but first john i'd just like if you don't mind to hear you compare this trip to some of your others what was different about it what was memorable about this epic trip to chennai well, I mean, the first thing is uh, it's by far the uh, longest journey I've ever undertaken in my life. Uh, there's no direct flights in the United States to Chennai, so I ended up uh, traveling on the way over. I stopped, I flew on Qatar Airways, and I stopped in uh, Doha, and that was like about 16 hours, and then it was another four hours to Chennai, and when you factor in the uh, layover and the uh, airport time at both ends... Yeah, about 27 hours. And then on the way home, I went through via Singapore and then, you know, sort of circled the globe, if you will. Uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's no way that such a journey is going to be very comfortable, uh, but it was for a good cause. I mean, you know, the chess Olympiad hadn't been held since 2018. And 
although uh, COVID is still with us, uh, you know, uh, FIDE decided to go out with the event and the Indians very generously decided to step in. Of course, the uh, Chess Olympiad uh, originally was supposed to be held in 2020 in Minsk in Belarus, and later that fell through, and then it was moved to Hantemansisk in Russia, and then that fell through, and then it was moved to Moscow, and it was all, you know, earlier this year, it was, you know, the thought was going to be that they were going to hold, hold it there this summer, but obviously for reasons that everybody in the world's aware of, that no longer became an option. And then it very much looked like the Chess Olympiad would not be held this year. I mean, it was four months to go before the event, and the Indians uh, accomplished the, uh, the seemingly undoable and managed to put on the event. Yeah. And from what I've heard so far, I did a couple interviews that some listeners will have heard with people in Chennai, uh, Grandmaster Axel Bachman and uh, Mr. Daji of Chessable. Um, they were pretty overall constructive about the conditions. And that tended to be what I heard in terms of interviews I watched and social media stuff. Um, John, how was your experience just sort of from a lifestyle in Chennai perspective? Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, Going into the Olympiad, uh, you know, there's a, a fair amount of, of work usually that has to be done, but this was more than normal. Uh, of course, one condition was that all the players needed to get visas, and uh, for some that was easier than it was for others. Uh, and some players on our team didn't get visas until you know the last week uh, before the uh, they were going to fly, so that was a little disconcerting. But but it came through, and that was sort of emblematic of of all the sort of organization uh, because we didn't know what hotel we would be staying in until about a week before and literally when we uh, got on the plane we didn't know if we would be met by anybody but once we arrived everything fell through came through in, in perfect shape uh, literally when you got off the plane uh, there was like a, a, a a crowd to greet you and uh, people took you through uh, customs and they helped you collect your bags and they were uh, they were just a huge team of volunteers uh, that you know there must have been like I don't know 500 young Indian chess players who uh, volunteered uh, two weeks of their time uh, to help to make the Olympiad run more smoothly and uh, for example when the fellow I was uh, Parham the fellow I was uh, uh, associated with, he was the one that met me at the airport. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, was very. He, he was peppering me nonstop with, "How can I improve my chess?" I mean, <laughs> it seems like, a, uh, you know, definitely, you know, there was a huge enthusiasm for chess in India, and so I think that uh, looking at how the organizers performed in terms of the. Uh, you know the things that are most important like the playing hall is it comfortable for the players is there enough room they, they got high marks for that uh you know were the hotels comfortable i think you know you know obviously not all the players stayed in the same hotel so there could be some differences on how people might you know look at it but in general i think they would get high marks again uh you know, another question is like, how easy is it to get to the playing venue? You know, in some past Olympiads, some teams had to travel like 30 minutes or an hour uh, to get to the playing venue. Here, that wasn't the case. My impression, it was more like nobody had to travel more than about 15 minutes. Uh, so for all those things, I think they get really high marks. The things that maybe they don't get so high marks on 
are things that they couldn't control at all. And one of those was the weather, and another was the situation with COVID. And uh, with the weather, you know, uh, for people that, you know, follow it in Fahrenheit, it was like, it was in the 90s, most of the tournament. And, uh, you know, there were a couple days where it rained and it cooled off a bit, but it was pretty hot. Uh, but to be fair, probably no hotter than it would be like, you know, on the Eastern seaboard in the summertime. Uh, it was very humid, but, but again, you know, in a lot of places in the U.S., it could be pretty humid. So, uh, uh, personally, coming from Northern California, I found the heat a, a bit oppressive. But but you know you know you you, you can't control things like that. Uh, the situation with COVID was rather interesting uh, because uh, of course uh, some of the newest variants have come from India and there are like huge number of cases there. Uh, so the requirement was that uh, all players be vaccinated, but that could be very loose. It could be you had one shot or you had two vaccinations and two boosters, you know, it was pretty, pretty, pretty minimal what would require you to be called vaccinated. Uh, if you, if you weren't vaccinated, you had to show a proof, proof of a negative test. Now, going into the Olympiad, uh, there were questions about how FIDE would address it. Would they re- mandate masking? Uh, would they allow spectators? Uh, and initially the rule the ruling was there would be no spectators in the, in the event. And of course, that was a big disappointment for Indian chess fans. But it was thought for the players, you know, health that you know that 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 you know just you know it would be because there's no way you could really police the people that were coming in as spectators as to their uh, their status. But uh, it turned out in the end that the spectators were allowed, and it turned out also that the uh, FIDE decided that there would not be any masking mandate; it would be voluntary. And I would say probably no more than about 5% of the people uh, were masked at any time. I would also say that uh, there were no like, you know, protective barriers or anything like that. So why do I mention this? Well, I think first off, when you talk about this Olympiad, you know, the first story that comes to mind is just how magnificently some of the young teams did, you know, uh, Uzbekistan, India too. Uh, you know, just really performed, you know, well above, you know, everybody knew that they were good. They knew that they were going to have a great result, but they obviously exceeded expectations. But it wasn't just uh, young teams. For example, the Armenian team played extremely well. And this was a veteran team. I mean, these were players that were like in their mid-20s and older. There were no like young superstars. Uh, Having said that, these three teams were probably not even close to being the biggest overachieving team in the Olympiad. That had to be Moldova. They had they finished tied for fourth through sixth, albeit a distant sixth on tiebreak. Uh, but if you look at that team, they didn't. They had one grandmaster. They had no players rated over twenty five hundred feet a. Their board four was rated below twenty four hundred feet a. Judging, I don't, I don't know the exact ages of the team, but I would say they, they look to me like they were mostly like in their early twenties to mid twenties. I could be wrong about that, but they didn't, they certainly didn't look like young the way the Uzbeks and the Indian teams did. And yet that team, they, they, they beat Norway. They, they beat, they beat a lot of great teams, and uh, they performed. You know, they must have picked up well over a hundred rating points. So. Uh, so I would say that all these uh, teams that performed well are really to be commended. The teams that did p- 
poorly or well below expectation, I think the situation is a little more complicated. And that brings me back to the earlier uh, topic of COVID, which doesn't seem to be like mentioned by any of the uh, other uh, uh, like you know YouTube videos I've seen. There's a by the way, there's a very good one with uh, on Chess India with uh, 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 Ivan Sokolov, the captain oh. of the uh, uh, Uzbek team, and it's over an hour. But I would say uh, if any of your listeners have a chance, it's well worth listening to. He has a lot of interesting insights, but he doesn't really mention this, and I expect the reason why is because it just wasn't a factor for his team. And that you know all of the players for the Uzbek team uh, were were healthy, and but for a lot of other teams that definitely wasn't the case. And I can't tell you with certainty, but when I look at like the performance, for example, of Norway, Norway was seeded third, albeit you know a lot of their power, shall we say, was concentrated in just one <laughs> single player, Magnus Carlsen. Uh, but they ended up finishing, I think, about fiftieth behind Zimbabwe and behind South Africa. Not probably the exact result that they were hoping for going in. And if you look at the, the players besides Magnus, they collectively shed, the other four players, about 75 ELO points. Which, you know, considering that you know Magnus played pretty much almost every game, that means their other players played like maybe eight games average maybe nine games average. That's a huge number of points to drop. Just a huge number of points to drop. And I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I could strongly suspect that, you know, at a certain point, uh, some of the players on their team were maybe not at 100%. And the policy from the uh, tournament organizers was essentially uh, don't ask, don't tell. And what I mean by that is there were... uh, uh, daily temperature checks, but if you didn't want to, you could easily avoid getting checked. And even if you did get checked, you know, for a lot of people, when they test, uh, if, if they have COVID, their temperature is not going to be abnormally high. And in this case, you, you, I think unless you're like, you know, in triple digits, uh, you know, and, and close to uh, uh, about to die, the organizers were not going to, uh, 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 you know, take any action. And the reason for that, for both sides, why they didn't, even if they had COVID, they wouldn't report it is because one, if you uh, were a player, you would no longer be able to play. And two, you would be having to face like a two-week quarantine in India. On the other side of the coin, yeah, on the other side of the coin, uh, I would guess that uh, if they had done a, a, a COVID test and they everybody that was positive during the Olympiad, like say in round 10, uh, they tested, they would have had to shut down the event. If they made the decision that if you were positive, you couldn't play. So for our team, I can tell you, first off, uh, um, not to, you know, in his case, it's pretty well known, but Levon Aroni, he was uh, sicker than a dog for much of the event. And uh, he could have been like sick the whole event, but he never really had a high temperature, so you know he, it was kind of like more like a mild cold or flu. But it, it got progressively worse, and by the time he played the match against Greece, he still felt well enough to play. But when he was playing, he he was just like he just had like a brain fog, and he just wasn't available to play the last you know the last games. Uh, so uh, 
so he's one example of a player who who definitely his result was impacted by that. Uh, Wesley was ill early on, but he uh, he managed to recover. Uh, Carissa Yip, she was very sick at the beginning of the tournament. Don't know that she had COVID. And in the case of Luan, he didn't have COVID, but he had something that required the tournament doctor to give him antibiotics. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think the combination of the heat, uh, different food, uh, you know, just, you know, combination of factors led to a certain number of players to being ill. And I think in that case, you know, having younger players on your team was definitely advantageous. Uh, but I do mention that only in the sense that I think all the teams that played really well deserve a lot of credit. But some of the teams that uh, maybe did worse than you would expect, I, I, I would, I would cut them a little bit of a break because I think they were probably their players were not at a hundred percent. That's interesting. And I do feel like, as you as you said, I do feel like that was underreported. I followed the tournament very closely and didn't hear too much discussion. So I have a few follow-ups from all of that information you just laid on us, John. Um, and the first one is, like, in sports, you know, it's kind of like a common thing that when someone's injured, you know, they're kind of discouraged from talking about it because it can be perceived as an excuse. Um so do you think there was some of that at work with players not discussing it? Or was it more like fear of uh, the event being sort of, um, uh, you know, thrown off track by a lot of people saying that they're sick? Well, if if you actually reported the tournament doctor and they, you know, they, they did a test and, you know, and many, many teams came with COVID tests. So they would have known the status of their players. But if you actually officially notify the tournament organizer, if you, I don't even know what would have happened if you had two players that tested positive for COVID. Would you not be able to field a team? I, I don't know. Uh, as far as I know, there were no teams that were unable to complete the event. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that also the, the, the prospect of like, you know, near the end of the event, you know, having to stay like in, you know, an Indian hotel or some hospital or something for two weeks. I don't think that was a, uh, uh, you know, facing that prospect, I think most people would probably just, you know, put on an N95 mask and just gut it out and get on the plane and get home. Yeah, that makes sense. And a couple other follow-ups, John. Number one, I did want to clarify the the commute time. Um, I, there were teams that had to travel over an hour. Uh, when I interviewed Axel Bachman from Paraguay, he mentioned that. And I know that uh, Tallulah Roberts, who will be on this episode, she on social media was growing increasingly frustrated with the wait times and the shuttle buses. Um, again, I do overall echo uh, what people have said about the quality of the organization, especially considering the short notice, um, but did want to mention that. And I wanted to follow up about you could avoid a temperature check if you wanted. So how would someone avoid one? Well, uh, the temperature checks were usually set up outside of the dining area. Okay. And you could just uh, arrange that when you exited uh, the uh, the dining area, if you just exited with several other people, and then they would just take the first person out the door, and then the other ones would just take a right hand turn, and off they'd be gone. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't. Well, there's nothing tricky about it. Gotcha. Um, and one other point of interest, you when you did make this this long journey, did you travel with anyone from the team, or was it just you? It was just myself, and I, I'm afraid that was the case with many American players, uh, for the simple reason that uh, 
one, we don't all live in the same location, and two, uh, a lot of the players were coming from different events. Not everybody had to travel on the American team for a long distance. For example, uh, uh, Wesley and uh, Lanier came from uh, Zagreb, where they, you know, they they had been playing in the uh, Rapid in uh, Blitz tournament there, and so for them it was more like about you know twelve or fourteen hours. It wasn't twenty four hours. Uh, I think Levon came from uh, Armenia. Uh, but most of the players came from the U.S. and, and particularly the longest journeys were the people like uh, Tatev and uh, who played for the women's team and Alejandro, who was the uh, 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 the coach for the women's team. They traveled from the uh, the middle of the U.S. and that made it even longer, uh, you know, because you had that additional travel time inside the U.S. to get to another place. Yeah, so it, it was it was pretty brutal, uh, but. You know, to be fair, I mean, probably, I mean, you think about it, you know, Indian players always have to travel, but usually they don't travel to the U.S. They usually travel to Europe, and that's not so bad. That's kind of like the mid midpoint for everybody. It's, you know, 10 to 12 hours. Yeah. And uh, Grandmaster Robert Hess was there coaching, and I believe he came from India at least, like, probably probably not a long time in India, but I think he mentioned on Twitter that he... He attended an, an, another event elsewhere in India just prior to uh, the Olympiad. Right, right. There was a there was a match between uh, I forget Vida, who who was playing. I think it was and, 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 yeah, they were playing, and and uh, and Robert was one of the commentators for that match. Uh, so he had traveled from I don't know whether he was in Europe or New York, but he had traveled to uh, to another city maybe it was mumbai or someplace and he had uh, done the, the work there and then he came from there uh so in general i would say that you know for for a 12-hour time zone difference you'd want to arrive uh, you know maybe a week early it, I, most of the u.s players arrived like two to three days early but i think you know with people's really busy schedules these days that you know is pretty much you know you, you're not going to do much better than that and uh, the one disadvantage was that our, our team started slow. And, uh, you know, in the first round against Angola, we really struggled. Uh, we won eventually three and a half, a half. But even there, it was a kind of a harbinger of, uh, of uh, bad things to come because uh, uh, Levon, he was, he was lost in the position where the Angolan you know, player agreed to a draw. And in the second round, we really struggled to win against Paraguay two and a half, one and a half. And the thing about uh, the Olympiad scoring, it's uh, by match points, but game points uh, greatly influence the uh, second tiebreak, which is uh, essentially the teams that you face and the number of points they score in the event multiplied by the number of points that you scored against them. So if a team finishes with like uh, uh, 16 match points, you multiply that, I believe, by the number of points you scored against them. So if they scored 16 and you scored three against them, you get 48 points. So obviously scoring two and a half against Paraguay, a team that, you know, didn't finish, you know, super high up in the standings, that, you know, while other teams were scoring three and a half or four, really put us uh, behind on the, uh, the secondary tiebreak. And the, the tiebreaks become more and more important in these Olympiads because the number of rounds in Olympiads has shrunk. It used to be, you know, when I started out, it was like 14, then it was 13, and now it's down to 11, which is pretty much the probably the minimum you could have. And 
the number of teams has increased greatly. This one had close to 190. So when you add those two factors in, number of rounds increasing, or decreasing, and the number of uh, teams competing increasing, obviously you're going to have uh, uh, a tighter squeeze, if you will, amongst the uh, the top scores. And you saw that here. I mean, there were two teams finishing on 19 and one team finishing on 18. Uh, uh, you know, and, and for example, we were probably, you know, we had very good chances if, if Wesley converted to win in the last round and we would have finished on 18, the same score as India too, but uh, we would have been a distant uh, fourth on tiebreak. Uh, you know, for us to have, have won bronze in the last round, we had to win the match. Plus, we had to hope that one of the three teams that was ahead of us would actually, uh, you know, you know, draw or lose their match. And then that, that didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah. A little bit disappointing, but yeah, your, your explanation of the, the conditions and yeah, the, the tie breaks do matter and it is shorter than ever. Now, some people have said that they feel like now there's just too many teams. Are you of the opinion that there, there needs to be some sort of um, like threshold for teams to compete in the Olympiad? Or do you say the more the merrier, John? I would say for the Olympiad, it is sort of the more the merrier. I mean, uh, for example, uh, in the regular Olympics, you know, like in track and field, they have like minimum qualifying standards and things like that. But in chess, I think the idea is that this, especially for some of the countries that don't have so many opportunities, this is like their one chance every two years to get some international competition. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, uh, you know, obviously it would be better if there were a few more rounds, but with so many teams, it, it's uh, it's quite expensive to organize the event, and I should mention that the uh, the federations pay for their players to uh, travel uh, to India. The organizer doesn't cover that cost, although FIDE covered the co travel costs of many of the uh, uh, less economically uh, privileged countries. Uh, so uh, there might have been like, I don't know, maybe say 30 countries that got some sort of subsidies all the way to free travel. Uh, the U.S. Chess Federation, of course, covered the cost for our players. Uh, but the, the food and hotel, for the most part, is is underwritten by the organizers. Uh, and the, the, there's a formula. It's like each team gets like three double rooms. So the federations that are you know, wealthier like the U.S. or most European countries, they upgrade and, and make sure that all of their, they pay a, a premium so that all of their players are able to stay in single rooms. I mean, it's uh, it's quite a long event and the players are older. So, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much essential. Uh, but still, you can imagine, you know, just making the event every day that it's held, there's quite an expense incurred. So uh, there's an incentive to try to keep the event uh you know, the number of days that it uh, runs, you know, uh, under control. And uh, so I don't see the Olympiad becoming, you know, uh, you know, more rounds, even though that would be one possible solution to the, the situation that they have at the present where, you know, teams really get bunched up in scoring. Yeah. And generally, uh, uh, regular listeners will know I'm, I'm a proponent of tie breaks over the board, but I do think that in the team element and with the cumulative score, as you described, the, the tiebreak system, I think it's decent because at least teams know going in and there is kind of more data involved in the tiebreak than there is in an individual competition when you are adding 
uh, the combined scores of all the people. But anyway, I mean, as you say, I know it's an, an imperfect, uh, there, there's no perfect answer when you don't have an unlimited budget. Um, now, John, one thing I think listeners might be curious about as a captain in the Olympiad is what your day-to-day is like there. Could you just walk us through a tip like round four, you wake up and tell us what happens through the course of a, an Olympiad day? Sure. So, so the first thing that happens is that uh, uh, you need to submit the uh, you well to back up a little bit. Uh, the uh, the round has ended the previous evening, say around approximately eight o'clock. It varies, but you know somewhere around that. By nine o'clock, pretty much all the games of the round have finished. By ten o'clock in the evening, the organizers have made the pairings for the next round, and then. Uh, the teams have until the next morning, uh, you know, it, it could vary from Olympiad, but usually by like nine or 10 o'clock, you have to submit your lineup. And of course, one thing that's changed, uh, since, uh, over the last dozen years or so is it used to be that there were, uh, four regular players and two reserves in the open competition. And there were three women and one reserve in the women's competition. Uh, but at a certain point in the late, maybe 2008 or so, they they changed it, and or maybe it was 2010. I'm not sure precisely when, uh, and they made made it so that each t- each open and uh, women's has four regular players and one reserve each. They equalized it out, which seemed quite reasonable. Uh, so what that means for the captain, though, is his job sort of got somewhat easier because now instead of having to consider two reserves that might play in addition to the other four, there's just one reserve. And so, uh, you know, different teams have different ways of handling that. Uh, Some teams uh, just play their first four all the time. And that was traditionally the case with the uh, Armenian team uh, in the days of when Levon Aronian played top board for them. Uh, Other teams like the U.S., which have traditionally been more balanced, uh, try to use all five players, and generally the the game plan is you know you you play everybody the first half of the tournament, and then you try to gauge who's in, in you know good form and who's not, and then go from there. But of course, with only one reserve, sometimes it can just be the process of elimination. Somebody's lost a terrible game, or somebody's really sick. Uh, you know, so you know things like that can mean that there's really no uh, no, dis, no, no deep thought involved at all. You know, you just have to do what you have to do, uh, and then you a little bit after ten o'clock in the morning, you you know the lineup of the other team, and then uh, this is where Robert would step in. You know, he had worked some in the evening before, especially some teams. He could pretty much guess who the first four players would be, or at least maybe say who the first three would be. Uh, but then after that, uh, then it's a question of. Uh, the players preparing for their individual games. And that was one thing that uh, that's really changed a lot over the last uh, couple decades. It used to be in the old days that what you were looking for in a, in a hotel was, you know, it should be clean, uh, it should be quiet, and uh, preferably you should be able to walk to the venue from the, uh, the place where you're staying. And you know, if it checked all those boxes, you you had a really good good location. Uh, here, uh, there's a new factor involved the last couple of Olympiads, and that is having a, a strong, secure internet connection. 
And that was a problem in the hotel we were staying at. And I should mention, by the way, that India and India too were staying at the same hotel we were. And so it wasn't like, you know, they, they, you know, we were staying, I, I would assume, in what was considered to be one of the best hotel options available. Uh, but uh, with so many players today, you know, using cloud-based preparation, uh, they really sort of feel vulnerable yeah. if they don't have you know, an internet connection. And so we were finally able to, uh, uh, to get it, pin it down and, and get some uh, mobile hotspots for the players. But one thing I, I, was, I came away really impressed from this event with was the uh, ability of the Indian bureaucracy to provide jobs for large numbers of its citizens. Because, uh, you know, it was amazing just for uh, something like, you know, a mobile hotspot, you just go in the U.S., you just go into, uh, uh, you know, a store, you just pick it up and you'd, be, you'd set it up and it'd be done. But here, you know, you had to bring your passport and they actually had to take a photo of you to, uh, uh, to, to, to be able to get this because it was like a, considered like a security issue. Uh, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll, bear you, I'll spare your listeners, but the, it was like, it was a small form of torture that was uh, it was very pleasant when it was resolved. Uh, but uh, you know that was probably the only real problem with the the other thing. It, I guess looking at looking back at this, wherever you're going to have the Olympiad, you know, food is always a question, and uh, you know, with buffet. Uh, it doesn't matter how good the hotel is. After a certain p- period of, of time, you know, you know, the the it seems like the meals are coming back faster and faster. The same ones, you know, day after day. Uh, you know, it's just impossible to uh, to keep things fresh. Uh, not physically fresh, but just you know something new and that you're looking forward to eating. Uh, the one thing that made Chennai a little bit different than other Olympiads is. You know, if you're staying in, for example, the next Olympiads in Budapest, if you're staying in, in, in downtown Budapest, if you don't like the food in the buffet, you can just go out and eat in a restaurant. You know, it's not an issue. Here, you know, if you were a tourist and you were there for a couple of weeks and if you got, you know, you know, Montezuma's Revenge, it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, but if you're playing in the tournament and you're playing for your country and your teammates and you have to be more responsible, uh, venturing out of the hotel really was not an option. So to that extent, you know, I know that some of the players like Sam Shanklin, you know, he just, you know, he, he, he wanted a yeah. burger or a steak, you know, and right. this was not going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, you know, but, you know, I mean, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, that, that makes sense. But, um, and this has come up again on, on the prior podcast discussing the Olympiad, I'm still a little hazy on. Um, so was there just no place to walk or, I mean, I know that I was, I understand that there were like handlers that discouraged people from leaving the hotel, but it, it does seem to me from the outside looking in, like if someone really wanted to go to a restaurant, they could go to one. Oh, sure you could. But I mean, I, I think the question is, uh, you know, uh, a question of, of different, uh, you know, bacterial flora right to yeah, put it delicately okay i mean i'm sure that when indians come to uh, north america their stomachs feel you know a little sensitive you know i mean just just because in different places you know there are different microbes and uh so yes i mean we were strongly discouraged from going outside to eat in a hotel because the hotel we were staying at was like this you know 
four-star Indian Radisson blue, uh, where you know they probably had you know very very careful in their hygienic practices. Right. Okay. Let's get back to the day in the life, John. So. Sure. Certainly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you get. Yeah. The- you don't. You don't. You don't want to concentrate on you know you know meditating on the throne. I hear you. <laughs> exactly. So you you post the lineup, which as you said, and in, in this particular Olympiad, you, there often was very little thinking involved based on who's available. And and what happens next? I mean, is it mostly just well, waiting around? Well, then then the play, then no. The, the, from ten o'clock to about two o'clock, the players are preparing for the games and then getting a little bit to eat. You know, somewhere somewhere in that time frame. And then around two two fifteen, they're walking to the uh, the central meetup point where the bus takes us to the uh, the venue. Which so maybe by the time you know you need to budget about twenty. 25 minutes between you leave your room and you you get to the playing venue and then you would uh get out uh and i should mention that the security was very tight uh they did not allow anybody to to take any vehicle into the uh the 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 playing area uh or not even the playing the surrounding the area surrounding the playing area uh you know only official buses and cars were allowed in and so then we would get out okay and then Sorry, we can would we back up for one second John? sure um so were the players ever uh, preparing together or was it uh generally they were preparing on their own and how oh. was uh grandmaster Hess involved in it okay sure so uh one thing you might you know i reading what sokolov listened to what he had to say about the event and i'm sure that his uh viewpoint uh you know, is probably seconded by a lot of other players, players and 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 observers. Uh, you know, there the there was a lot of sort of talk that the U.S. team was like just like this, you know, all-star team of mercenaries, if you will, and that it wasn't a real team. It wasn't like a tight-knit group the way, like say, like the Armenian teams are noted to be. Uh, but I would say this uh, uh, compared to 2016 and 2018, this was probably a uh, a tighter team than 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 those ones were. Uh, certainly, the team meetings were longer uh, and, and more involved, and people talked, you know, about different openings and games they'd played, and uh, uh, and part of that, I think, just because Levon's a very social person and very engaging, and he sort of took on the role of like the team leader. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, you know, the uh, I would say the team spirit was pretty good. Uh, the uh, as far as the preparation went with Robert, I think it really depended on on who was playing that day and uh, and also uh, who they were playing. And you know, in some cases, uh, players were you know pretty clear about what they thought pretty high probability what sort of opening would would appear on the board. And maybe they would need a lot of they would need some help from Robert. Other times, you know. They knew what they played. I mean, these, after all, these guys are like you know world class players, and they would just been you know just you know just be themselves. Uh, but there was definitely uh, a communication amongst the various team members on you know like on different openings and things like that. So uh, if you know the team you know didn't perform to expectation, but it wasn't because of bad you know mojo on it. Okay. 
Um, and did they prepare? I mean, obviously, these are professionals, often with their own uh, teams helping them prepare for their games. Was there much sort of interfacing amongst the players in terms of like when they would uh, prep for individual players? I it, it kind of just it it varied. You know, uh, certainly the players during the team meetings, they would discuss certain openings and they would discuss, uh, you know, you know, if they knew something about the people they were going to play against, you know, or, you know, they would share common experience, that sort of thing. Uh, but in general, you know, a lot of the preparation that's done today, you know, it, it's just, you know, individual preparation that's cloud-based and, you know, the Silicon Oracle is the uh, yeah. ultimate arbiter. Yeah, things have changed for sure. Um, so any other, in terms of like a typical day, are there any other, I mean, you, you go to the hall when they're playing, right? You go to the hall when they're playing and you typically arrive, uh, there was there was no zero tolerance, but you had to be there within 15 minutes of the start of the game. And, uh, you know, at first we were getting there like at 2.30, but it was kind of a long wait to sit there. I should also mention that, uh, you didn't when you arrived on the bus and when and the and the point where you actually sat down in the playing hall it could very much vary how long it would take you because a lot of it depended on uh on the indian chess fans they just loved you know this is they you know they 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 knew all their uh, all the heroes they 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 seemed to know like you know every american player by face and uh they were like you know they want very much wanted autographs and selfies and stuff and for example sam shanklin was very popular and i would say that you know every every round he must have been signing like you know 20 or 30 autographs wow. you know coming and going yeah it was uh you know <laughs> i i would imagine these players sign more autographs there than they usually do in a year man that's uh yeah uh... right but on the other hand it was kind of mind-blowing to see like uh, some of the pictures of Magnus when he would finish yeah. his game. And then he would just literally be swarmed by all these Indian chess fans that wanted to take uh, selfies with him. And then, and they were all without masks on. He was out without a mask. You know, I I definitely, you know, was impressed. You know, I think Viking blood still runs through <laughs> his veins because that must have been like his protection. Because if there was anything to be caught, you would have thought he would have caught it there. Right. Well, I know he's had COVID at least once, although these days lots of people are getting it more than once. Um, um, so, yeah, fasc fascinating stuff. So, I mean, Jad, we've got a couple other topics I want to hit besides the Olympiad. So um, in, in closing, how do you think you'll look back on this um, years down the road? It sounds like the, the COVID and, of course, the as you mentioned, the the young superstars, the Gukeshes and Abdusatarovs, those will be the, the first things top of mind for you? Probably, but you know the thing that, that there's a couple of things I would mention, and one is let's say that we had won the last round, we would have finished with 18 match points. And how many match points do you think we had in Batumi in 2018? Uh, no, well, 19. <laughs> no, we had 18 points I, there. I should have. Okay, guessed. so if we yes, yeah, so if we had won, we would have finished with the same number of match points against pretty similar opposition. I mean, to be fair, in 2018, we played against China, who was missing in this Olympiad. Uh, but here we played against both India and India too. I, I mean, India too, as, as great as these young players are, I wouldn't necessarily say they would be as good as the Chinese team. Uh, and in looking at the, uh, you know, 
what would have happened if China and Russia had played? I mean, obviously, it's impossible to say. Uh, the only thing I'm pretty certain of is the individual scoring of the teams would have been lower. And uh, that is, this time, two teams finished with 19, and one team finished with 18. And I suspect that if China and Russia were playing, those scores would have been a little lower. You know, maybe maybe one point lower, for example. And uh, I base that on the fact that uh, over the last few rounds, the top teams, uh, they, to a certain extent, they kind of ran out of opponents. I mean, not to say the Spanish team and the Dutch team uh, weren't quality teams, which obviously they they, they are. Uh, but somehow, in this event, they really were not playing like to their full potential. And I think that you know, with the China or Russia facing them in one of the you know penultimate or final round, it would have made for a little you know a little bit lower scoring. And uh, I think you know either one of those teams could easily have finished on the podium. But but still, all all the more power to the th three teams that medaled, uh, and also all the more power to uh, the. Uh, the U.S. women. I mean, I mentioned how, you know, the U.S. Open team, you know, even though it suffered miserably, and 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 I would not have said the performance was all sat it's at all satisfactory. It wasn't that far from actually, you know, even going to the last round. If we'd won and had a little bit of luck, we would have been on the podium. So, was it a bad result? Yes. Was it a, a truly awful stinker of all time result? No, I don't think it was. Uh, but obviously we can do better. Yeah. Uh, but our women really rose to the occasion. They had a really slow start to the tournament, and uh, I explained, you know, Carissa was sick for one, and, and, and it's quite possible one of the other players wasn't feeling too well either. Uh, but but once she got better, you know, I think she won like her last five or six games, uh, they really caught on fire, and... Uh, uh, all the players in the team really contributed to a great result. Uh, uh, Begum, who's playing on board one, even though she was the lowest rated player on the team, that true, turned out to be an inspired uh, choice by uh, uh, Melit Kachian, the uh, longtime U.S. women's team captain. Uh, she was undefeated on board one. She played really, really well. And, you know, she's just a, a real uh, good leader for the team. Uh, they... If they had scored a half point more against the Indian team in the last round, they would have taken bronze. As it was, I think they lost by like six tiebreak points, you know, out of like 350 to 356, something like that. It was extremely close. And uh, if you look at it, historically, the U.S. women finished second in 2004, with, uh, you know, led by Susan Polgar. Uh, 2008, they finished uh, third. And here they tied, they finished fourth. Uh, again, you know, China and Russia, two very strong women's teams, maybe arguably even stronger than their their open competition teams, uh, were missing. But still, it was a very good result, and it also led to a, a very interesting performance. Everybody knows about, you know, you take first in the uh, open Olympiad, you take first in uh, the uh, uh, women's Olympiad, but there's also a third award that's out there for grabs, and that's the Gipprindishvili Cup. And that's for the highest scoring team in both combined scoring. And that was won by India. Uh, that is the India 1 team and the India 1 uh, women's team. But the U.S. was second. Our, our combined score for our men and our women uh, was put us in second for the Gipprindishvili Cup. And that's the best result we've ever had ever.
period. And you know that, of course, is in you know the women get a lot of credit for that. That's one of the reasons why I finished so high up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was, it was you know this was only the second time in a, uh, what well Dubai, if you want to say that that's Middle East, but the only other Asian uh, site was Manila '92. So it was good that 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 the Olympiad went to uh, to Chennai. In a perfect world, uh, you know, it would be a post-COVID world, and you would be able to have like you know, ten thousand Indian spectators at the event or something, you know, wild. Uh, but uh, but still, it was you know, it, it was it was it was nice they were able to hold they were hold, able to, to hold the tournament and and knock on wood there was nobody that got, you know, any long-term serious illness as a result of playing in the event. Right, yeah, and this certainly won't be the last uh, we see of major events in India, given their chest trajectory. So maybe it, it can hap- happen again. Now, one one more quick Olympiad question, John. Of course, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of discussion over the years and recently online about the fact that uh, some players have emigrated to the U.S. Some some more recently than others and are competing on the Olympiad team. Obviously, part of that is due to the investment of uh, Rexingfeld and the St. Louis Chess Club of uh, supporting some of these uh, emigres like uh, Dominguez and Aronian more recently. Um, So I'm curious, and you can choose to not answer this if you would like, but do you have any sort of debriefing with with St. Louis or with Mr. Sinkfeld after the tournament or during the tournament? Oh no no no! This this uh, the Olympiad. Uh, I mean, at first, uh, I mean, just to back up a step, uh, the U.S. Chess they they they're the ones that are involved with the selection of the team, and uh, unlike many other countries where there's a committee that selects the players, here it's done by a rating formula, and the formula is a very simple. One there are three parts to it. One is uh, at the time of invitation, their FIDE rating. At the time of invitation, their U.S. CF rating, and the third component is an average of their peak USCF and peak FIDE over the last 12 months. So the, 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 the team is selected by a mathematical formula. Once it's selected, the players vote for who they wish to have as captain and who they wish to have as coach. Uh, St. Louis you know, helps sponsor the Olympiad team. The Kasparov Chess Foundation also helps sponsor the team. But uh, it's the USCF that uh, sets up all the, you know, they, they sets up the regulations, uh, how the team's chosen, and how the coach and captain are chosen. Right, but nonetheless, one without, I think oh no, it's fair I, to I, say they, without they, St. Louis, some of these players wouldn't live in the U.S. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, but uh, you know, I know that one question is, you know, obviously there's only five spots for the Olympiad team, and there's. We have so many good world-class players now. I would guess that we must have a, like a dozen players, for example, if not more now in the top 100 in the world. Because besides the five that played here, of course, we have Hikaru, makes six. And then we've got uh, Jeffrey and Hans and Sam Sevian and Ray Robson and Dario Swears. That's five plus Nakamura, six plus the five I mentioned. That's 11 right there. That are all over 2650 that are rated in the top 100. Uh, so clearly, we, you know, if if the Chess Olympiad were ever held in the U.S., we could easily field more than one team that could compete for medals. And by the way, in nine, this is not the first team, time that a team that 
was not the, the major team from a, a country has won a medal in Olympiad because in 94, the, uh, the Russian two team led by uh, Alexander Morozevich, which was a young base team also, they also medaled. They took third, you know, Kasparov's team took first, uh, uh, you know. Uh, so uh, what I would say, is, and also another thing to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, you can't just come to the country and the next year you're playing for the U.S. If you look at, for example, Lenier Dominguez, he had to step out several years and essentially didn't play hardly any chess, and you know, uh, I think for at least two years before he was eligible to represent the U.S. Uh, it's a tricky question, but you know, the United States is a different country than most in the world in the sense that it's not based on ethnicity, but on you know ideas of you know what it is to be an American, and so we're a nation of immigrants. And uh, but it, on the other hand, it's really tough if you're trying to fight for a spot on the Olympiad team and. You get so close, and it feels like you know your hands just reached up on the last rung of the ladder, and you're about on the team. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes and kicks you down that yeah. that ladder. So, so it's very very tricky situation. But I, I mean, what I would say is that compared to most other countries in the world that I'm aware of, uh, the U.S. system is very transparent. Yeah. You know, you know what the formula is. There's no special committee. There's nobody hiding behind. Uh, the 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 veil that chooses the team it's it's by rating and you you know what you have to do to get on the team yeah that that's a fair point all right well on the olympiad john we'll leave it there thanks for all your insights and because we do have a couple uh listener questions related to bobby fisher i would encourage anyone who has not heard my prior interviews with john um to listen to those we talk tons of fisher and john just probably is the leading expert in the world on Mr. Fisher. And I strongly recommend, as I have before, that you read Bobby Fisher and his world amongst John's other Fisher books. Um, so to get to the question, John, the first one is from the official brain correspondent of Perpetual Chess, Christopher Chabri, um, who asks if you have any plans of publishing a printed version of your compilation of all of Fisher's annotations and writings. He mentions that it would be a nice companion volume to Bobby Fisher and his world. It's funny. It's funny you should mention that because it, I I do, and it's about ninety nine percent done. Oh, great! And uh, so, uh, it, and and it's 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 greatly expanded from the ebook. So, uh, hopefully, that will be out by the end of the year. That's my 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 hope. Excellent. And one other Fisher question, um, which is uh, from Jeff Martinson. And I'm putting you on the spot here, John, but I bet you, you'll you remember this story. Jeff asks, can John elaborate on the Bobby Fisher anecdote that when young, he was known to shout, Bobby kill during Blitz games? Uh, yeah, I I remember reading that. I think in uh, Alan Kaufman used to have a, a column about chess in New York that was written when Chess Life was a newspaper back in the... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it was in that format up until about 1960 or so, at the end of 1960. And and, and Kaufman, in his column, he would uh, uh, capture some of Bobby's favorite kibitzes, if you will. And that was one of them. Uh, but that I think that, you know, that was when Bobby was like, you know, he's like maybe 12 or 13 years old. Oh, okay. Obviously, you know, later Bobby didn't, 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 you know, use that as his normal kibitz. Okay. And so you mentioned that this Fisher compilation should be out by the end of the year. Uh, what else have you been up to, John? 
Uh, well, I, I've been working on that, and I've also been doing a lot of work for the World Chess Hall of Fame on their upcoming exhibition on, uh, you know, that, that's based on the Fischer-Spassky match, you know, 50-year anniversary, but it's much, much more. Uh, anybody that's been to uh, St. Louis and been to the World Chess Hall of Fame will know that they have three different floors uh, where they host exhibitions, and uh, the traditional format has been... Uh, one exhibition, one floor, but the uh, World Chess Hall of Fame's uh, breaking with tradition here, and all three floors of the World Chess Hall of Fame will be dedicated to this exhibition, which uh, uh, opens on August 18th, in just a couple days from now, and uh, it will cover not only the Fischer-Spassky match, but it will cover the uh, life of uh, both Fischer and Spassky, uh, from their, you know, from their youth all the way up until, you know, in the case of Fisher, the end of his life, and in the case of uh, Spassky, the very end game of his life. Yeah, it sounds sounds amazing. Um, opening in time for the Sinkfield Cup. Uh, so, yeah, more reasons than ever to go to St. Louis, something I still haven't done. <laughs> might, might have to look at some flights when, when we finish this interview. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this this exhibition should be really, really great. And uh, 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 what can I? Some things I can tell you that I learned that I didn't know previous to this. One funny thing is that uh, uh, I believe, but I'm not certain, that uh, Fisher and Spassky competed at something besides chess in the 1992. I haven't been able to 100% confirm it, but I've 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 seen some indications it was true. Okay, they played tennis together. And uh, one of the things that became very uh, apparent to me uh, in helping to research this uh, exhibition is uh, how both of them growing up, how important sports for, were for them. And Spassky, one thing I, I didn't realize was uh, uh, the, uh, the World Chess Hall of Fame uh, 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 curator, uh, Emily Allred and her... Uh, Associate uh, Nicole Tesmer, the the registrar there, they managed to unearth a uh, a picture of of Spassky high jumping, <laughs> and when he was like in you know high school, he jumped his height, which was like one meter seventy eight, which is about like five foot ten. So he wasn't you know it wasn't like going to be a world class uh, high jumper, but still you know you know I bet you for uh, world chess champions he was probably he might have been the high jump jump champion of all the world chess champions. Uh, so a little piece of trivia for for Boris Spassky chess fans. Uh, that's good. And, yeah, good to know. Um, and Spassky, uh, I've you know I've heard vague rumors that his health isn't great. Do you do you know of anyone who's been in touch with him and setting up this exhibit? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, uh, in two thousand six, he was in San Francisco, and he was a guest of the Mechanics Institute and. Uh, he uh, uh, did all sorts of things while he was there. He gave a, 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 a simul. He uh, uh, did a training uh, seminar with the uh, U.S. Chess League team for the uh, mechanics. Uh, he did a uh, like a question and answer and reminiscence uh, one day. Uh, but at the very end of it, uh, he was feeling tired and. Uh, he started to slur some of his words a little, but just just for a short time, and uh, but about 15 minutes after the the last event at the mechanics, uh, he uh, 
he suffered a, uh, a stroke. And it was very fortunate that uh, Dr. Anthony Sadie was staying in the same hotel with him and immediately diagnosed what the problem was and got him to a hospital. And, and for stroke victims, that's getting prompt care is really, really critical. Uh, and so uh, it was a very mild stroke. I uh, didn't have any uh, uh, impact on his uh, uh, mental or physical uh, faculties. Uh, he felt like he was ready to go home like the day after, but they kept him for observation for about a week uh, in San Francisco. Uh, uh, but then he did go home and, uh, and, and just went back to resuming his normal activities. I saw him at the uh, Olympiad in uh, Dresden in 2008, and he was in, in good form. But a few years after that, he had a stroke in Russia. And uh, this was a very serious one. And uh, my understanding is that you know, it left him paralyzed on one side of his body. Uh, but thankfully, it didn't uh, diminish his, uh, his mind. And uh, now he lives in Moscow, and uh, he, uh, uh, you know, you know, he he. I think his last public appearance in the West was about 2015. I think he took the train from Moscow to Berlin, and he was a guest at some chess event. But uh, he's not been seen. I think maybe you know he's made some public outings in Russia, but of course now with the political situation, I'm not sure that we'll ever see him. You know, you know. I mean, he was born in 1937, so he's you know he's 85 years old. Uh, uh, so you know, hopefully he's he's doing well. But uh, of course there were also some questions about why he ended up living in. In Russia, instead of you know Paris, where he had spent you know from 1975 till till maybe 2012, you know why did he make that move over? And uh, uh, that's uh, a complicated question. Uh, uh, there's some evidence to suggest that he was sort of taken against his will, uh, and you know I talking to people that I, whose reputation I, I trust. I, I think there's a lot that suggests that was indeed the case. Uh, so, but uh, yes. Uh, who, who would have taken him? Well, he, you remember, he had this other stroke, so he was receiving care. So uh, uh, some, there's a representative, some representatives of the Russian government, and there was one woman in particular that was kind of like his, uh, uh, you know, became sort of his minder in Russia, and, and she might have, I mean, you can read about it on the internet, and if you talk, if you read what the family members have written, and what his sister has written, uh, it suggests that, you know, he was, you know, kind of coerced or duped in kind of coming to Moscow. Uh, the other side of the coin is they'll say that you know they were making these allegations that his family was trying to steal all of his uh, valuables and things like that. It, it, it's it, I I I tend I I I would believe his family more strongly okay. in this case. Yeah, but I mean you know people can read up on it and, and try to piece it together as best they can. Okay. And and last topic, John. So we know we 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 really appreciate your taking the time coming off this twenty-seven hour flight, heading to St. Louis in a couple of days. Um, but um, looking beyond, 
So 2023 and beyond, do you know what your next project will be or will your uh, much rumored OTB return take place or anything else uh, going on? Well, I, w- I would like to start playing more. I mean, I had hoped I would be already playing this year, but just there was a lot of things to do. I've got a couple other small things I'm working on. I'm uh, uh, I'm helping for a new edi- helping Jeremy Silman on his new edition of uh, of the Pal oh, Benko great. book that he wrote that it was appeared about 20 years ago. Uh, so just helping out a little bit in that regard. Uh, uh, but just to close, I would say uh, looking at uh, U.S. chess in general in the year 2022, uh, the Olympiad performance uh, accepted. I think that uh, uh, the chess situation here is a really positive one. And uh, of course, everybody's really mentioning you know the great success of the uh, Indian and uh, Uzbek grandmasters and you know how they have all these really great young players but I would also point out that we have a lot of really good young players and uh, we have uh, 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 several players I mean Hans Niemann and uh, uh, you know he's 18 years old and he's almost 2700 uh, and you know Sam Sevian and Ray Robson and uh, 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 Jeffrey Zhang are, are a little bit older uh, but Jeffrey's not that much older, and Sam also not that much older. Uh, but I, I have a feeling these guys also can still improve greatly. And the U.S. Championship that will be held this fall will be 14 players instead of 12, and should be, you know, not sure about Hikaru because you know he's busy, really busy with his streaming. But uh, uh, most, if not all, the best players in the U.S. Mm-hmm. will be playing. And uh, so that tournament should be a real treat. And uh, I think for a lot of these players I just mentioned, it will be a real uh, battle royale as they try to displace, you know, the guys that are above them. Uh, so I see U.S. chess in a very good place right now. And also the uh, number of, of good young female players in the U.S. has just really improved dramatically the last decade. If you were to look like 10 years ago, there were no U.S young women on the top girls under 21 list in the world and now i think there's like eight or nine players so it's it's definitely things have changed and uh you mentioned that you know part of it's the sink field effect but i think also uh uh u.s chess has done a good job in like encouraging a lot of people to uh uh to step forward and make their own contributions, whether it's like Greg Shahadi with his U.S. Chess School, or it's uh, what's going on in Charlotte, or the, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, or uh, uh, you know, around the world, around the U.S. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm not mentioning all the, the the key contributors, but it just seems like there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of good things for American chess right now. There's a lot of really good uh, chess teachers that are out there, and so I think that. Uh, Going forward, uh, you know, 2023 and, and onwards, I think that, uh, you know, there's U.S. chess, the prospects are quite I bright. Strong agree, yeah. And congrats once again to the U.S. women on their uh, strong showing. Um, and I think that's a that's a good note to end on, John. John, I always learn so much from from talking to you, so I uh, really appreciate your, your taking the time, as always. Okay, well, thank you for having me. And I'll end on one last note. I would say... 
Uh, I would also uh, congratulate Melek Kachin, the coach for the women's team, yes. and also the captain and, and the coach was Alejandro Ramirez. They both did a really great job. Yeah, and I have a great interview with Melek deep in the archives if anyone goes digging. I think it was uh, 2016 or 2017, but I, he's someone I'd like to speak to again sometime. Um, okay, uh, take care, John. Thank you. Okay, you too. Bye. Take care. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.